if you would please turn in your Bibles to, again, the book of Ephesians, and would ask you to stand this morning as we read from the fourth chapter. You're going to read um, again from 20 uh, down through verse uh, 26. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But that is not the way you learned Christ, that is, through greed and impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Uh, please be seated. Let's go to God. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we would pray for your grace. O oh Lord, it profits nothing unless your Spirit blesses. O oh God, bless your word today preached. Be with your people. Our God, grant, Heavenly Father, the grace to put away our sin, to put away selfishness, to put away self-centeredness, to put away a lack of faith, our God. We pray that you would revive us. Pray that you were but to go forth to change hearts, to change lives, to change minds, that we may become more like <coughs> the Lord Jesus Christ from having been here this morning. May we leave saying it was good to have been in the house of the Lord. Oh, the Lord work grace upon grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just an aside that I failed to, to mention, but Ken and Carolyn are, are with us here. And then Dr. Nolan and his wife as well. I hadn't seen them for a while. I'm glad they are both here. And God gave them safety in their travels. Uh, as we read the Bible, uh, we recognize, and Paul speaks of this in these verses, that according to what Scripture teaches, we are to be perfect as our God in heaven is perfect. We recognize that we never will be perfect. We can't reach perfection. We do not believe in perfectionism as some do. Uh, we know that we'll struggle with sin. The key word there is struggle uh, with sin. We think battle with sin, now, not giving in to it, not giving up to it, not accepting it in our lives. And in these verses in the book of Ephesians that we are going to be considering this morning, you remember that it is the end product of the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of redemption, and the doctrine of sanctification. That once we are saved, God cares the manner in which you live. He cares what you think. He cares what you do. And he would have you to be obedient. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't turn his head away. Uh, but he notices it. And he does not like it. 
Uh, and again, to quote dear Bill Combs, uh, who was such a dear, dear man, uh, he takes your sin seriously. So because of what Christ has done in our lives, we read here that we are to put off the old man. And that is before we were converted, what we were like before we came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, given ourselves to, uh, to infidelities, given ourselves to um, ungodliness, uh, sexual perversions, uh, to greed and those types of things. Well, now we are to put those things off and put those things far away from us, for we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go through this text, we notice three examples that he gives us here of what it is to put off the flesh and to put on the new man. And the three things are that uh, truth uh, and um, anger and stealing. And we dealt with truth last week. We'll deal with it again this morning just a little bit uh, briefly. And uh, because these things are important to God, they are important to you, or they should be important to you as well. There's a question, how much difference has your conversion made in the way that you live your life, the things you think, the things you're committed to? Is your commitment to Jesus strong and firm? And so that above all things you desire to please him, you desire to know him more deeply, more so than the things of the world, more so than the things the world has to offer. But these things, as we know, are passing away. Are you committed, because of your conversion, uh, to striving after the Lord Jesus Christ, to be like him more and more each and every day? That we don't say, I had enough of Jesus yesterday, I grew enough yesterday, therefore I can coast today. And that simply is not correct. Uh, it is a striving, uh, a constant going after and tra- seeking to be like the Lord Jesus Christ day by day, moment by moment. And because call, the Apostle Paul sets these things out for us as an example of putting on the new man, well, they have to be important to us as well. And so the Bible dictates to us um, biblical ethics. And as those who are to be faithful to Christ, we are to incorporate the biblical ethics into our own lives. And the three examples, again, the believer must relate to one another on the basis of truth. Believers must relate to one another on the basis of forgiveness. And believers must relate to one another on the basis of charitable, being charitable. Uh, and these things are important for us because they are listed here in the Scripture. The first one then, and we looked at very briefly last week, and we'll look at very briefly this morning, once so brief last week, but be briefly this morning, that we are uh, to relate to one another on the basis of truth. And so that when we are converted, when we come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we then are to be committed to telling the truth. Lies are contrary to doctrine. Lies are contrary to uh, the word of God, contrary to the law of God. And uh, we can see so easily how lies destroy the church. Lies destroy marriage. Lies destroy uh, interpersonal relationships and uh, in the work and whatnot. So Paul feels strong to exhort these people because they are now in Christ, because they are now in the kingdom of truth, if you will, because they follow uh, the Messiah uh, of truth, then they are to seek to put lies away and falsehoods away. And I think it was Edward Donnelly that uh, made the point that even in the way that we look, we can sometimes be deceitful. And we can deceive others. And it is to be that we are so committed to the truth, we want to give no appearance at all of being lying or being uh, rather seeking to uh, deceive someone in some way or another. 
uh, and we looked at the Old Testament. It's like there's one prime example of a man who was a very, very important in Old Testament history and in, in Old Testament redemption, and that was Abraham, who didn't lie but once, but lied twice about his wife putting at risk the promise of the son, the seed uh, to come, Isaac. And uh, he lied to Pharaoh, and he lied to Abimelech the king. She's not my wife. She is my sister. Well, she was his half-sister, but that's not the point. He didn't. He lied to save his own skin. I am not married to her. By all means, you can take her. And then we noticed also that Peter was the example of one who was so confident in the New Testament, and yet Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three different times on the very night that Christ was betrayed and about to be killed. And so we put on truth, and negatively then, when we do not lie in a positive way, we tell the truth to one another, and we do so in love. And the motivation for this, and Paul gives us into the Scriptures, because we are members of one another. This would do so well for us uh, to guard the purity of the church, to guard the unity of the church, if we remembered that we belong to one another in Christ. And listen to this. I think that we are closer in Christ than people who are blood kin and one's a believer and one's not. So there's unity there in the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings us together as a church family. Uh, That means that we are to love one another. That means that we are to have the other's best interest at heart always. Uh, And it also means that uh, we are to strive by all means, uh, to keep the unity there and by being honest and being committed to the truth. And if I may read this quote to you, lying is not only wrong because it makes light of the intrinsic excellence of the truth, but also because it causes trouble, friction, and sadness in the church, the body of Christ. Does Jesus care how you conduct yourself in the church? Yes. Does Jesus care if you cause disruption in the church? Yes. Does Jesus care if you cause schisms in the church? Yes. And he hates it because it is the bride of Christ, and we are to strive together in unity according to what the Scriptures teach us. Well, now, we get into the second portion of this, that we are to relate to one another on the basis of peace. As he says here, be angry and do not sin. Uh, remember in the Beatitudes, Christ said this, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, well, we are called then to be those who establish peace in the church. We are called then to be those who see to it that uh, so far as we are concerned, what the Bible says, so far as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. You can't make somebody be peaceful. You can't make somebody uh, be free of anger. But so far as it is up to you, live at peace with all in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here says, be angry. And so a husband goes home and he gets mad at his wife about something. So well, the Bible says to be angry. And nothing wrong with that. My professor, one of my professors in USM said this in one of his classes. You can make the Bible say anything. And you can make the Bible say anything if you pull things out of context. Someone says, well, the Bible says there is no God. Um, Psalm 14, 1, there is no God. Psalm 53, 1, there is no God. You can make the Bible say anything, but if you read the entirety of the verse, it says this, the fool said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt. In 51.3, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, again, they are corrupt. So be angry, but that's not the entirety of the verse, and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. 
And in fact, he says this, do not allow the sun to go down on your anger. And an example, a fine example, the example to us of one who was angry and not sinning was the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 3, 4 through 6, he said this, he said to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. You're Christ healing somebody on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath, in the Old Te- New Testament. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against how they might destroy him. Do you see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding wickedness of sin. The same thing happened when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. It said some there saw what happened, and they believed. Others didn't believe. And they went and discussed how they might kill him. Kill the Prince of Peace. Kill this man who just made a man's hand who was useless to be useful. Kill the man who had just brought somebody from the dead back to life. Kill this man. Sin so blinds our hearts, so blinds our being, that we can think we are doing something good and right, and yet it is terribly, terribly wrong. Sin is exceedingly wicked, and we see it here. These people denied an obvious miracle that Christ had performed. we got to kill him. Why? Well, because he raised, he made a man's hand well on the Lord's day, on, on the Sabbath. He called a man up from the dead, and people are starting to follow him. What's that going to do to our position uh, here among the Jews? Uh, we're not going to be popular anymore, and we're going to have to deal with this. We have to deal with it quickly. When Christ purged the temple, you remember that in uh, all the Gospels talk about it, and John talks about it in his second chapter. Uh, what were they doing? Well, they had animals even in the temple selling those animals. Uh, the idea was you, easier to buy one when you get there than to try to drive your lamb or carry your animal from your home and go all that distance with your animal and have to fool with it and take care of it. The closer you got to Jerusalem, the more expensive the animals became. And so that in the temple, uh, they were very, very expensive. And you can imagine if we had animals in here and then they were chains, selling them and there was making noises and the stench of animals and so forth in the church. Well, that's what it was in the temple. And they had money changers there because people that came a long way away, well, they would have to exchange their money and get their currency that was acceptable and they would buy their animals. What did Jesus do? We read that he took a cord and made a whip and drove them out. And he said, you have made my house, which is a house of prayer, a house of robbers and thieves. They were taking advantage of people. The prices were inflated. And they were using the temple for something that was never intended to be used for that. It was a place of worship. And they had destroyed that And quite distracting it would have been for those who were there to worship and give their sacrifice to the Lord. These were businessmen, right? Just savvy businessmen. Where a better place to sell your goods than in the temple itself? You get the better dollar for it there in the temple. And they had forgotten the very purpose of the temple, 
which was to go in in great reverence and humility and worship God. And they had destroyed that. See, here Christ was surely angry uh, when he drove them out of the temple. And what does the scripture say? It was what moved him to do that was zeal for the Lord. The zeal for the Lord. Zeal for the honor of God. Zeal for the name of God. Zeal for the reputation of God. They were treating God with disdain. They were treating worship with disdain. And they didn't care because they were making money. And they were lovers of money, not lovers of God. And we can ask ourselves this question. We should have a similar zeal as well. Again, Edward Donnelly, who uh, has died, uh, Kathy and Tim met him and heard him preach. I would love to have done that, but I can hear him on the Internet, which is a good thing. Uh, he was really a godly, godly man and a very, very capable preacher. And uh, he said in the sermon I listened to um, on this text, we need to be more angry today. We need to be more consumed today with God's glory and with a passion for God. And we can ask ourselves this, do acts of unrighteousness disturb us at all? Uh, do they make us angry when we see God's honor uh, being uh, blasted, being disrespected? Is it that our sensibilities have become so dull and lifeless because uh, we live in Sodom and Gomorrah these days? And our government uh, sanctions and approves the killing of babies. They say that it's okay. That's one of the worst blights on this country and throughout the world. Abortion. Taking a child that is helpless and can't defend itself and killing it. Dr. Robertson, Palmer Robertson, one of my professors in seminary said it was like the worship of Moloch. Moloch was a uh, Philistine God. They offered children on the lap of Moloch or in the hands of Moloch. Sacrificed them alive in order to control their destiny, in order to control their future. Same thing with abortion. In order to control their future, in order to control their destiny, they take the life and scrape it out of the womb of the mother. I'm sorry if that's offensive language, but that's the way it is. You cannot soft coat uh, murder. And that's exactly what is happening. So do you get angry uh, when we recognize uh, that there are some people saying even up to the time of birth we can let the baby die? Uh, are we upset when we hear of children being taken and put in the sex trade slave? Some of you even put into pornographic films, children, little ones, toddlers. I'm not going to tell you what I heard last week on the news but it was horrific that happened at the Galleria of all places. I'm not going to tell you what it was. I do not want to disturb you. But it was horrendous. If you don't believe in total depravity, look at that. Look at things like that. You certainly we become convinced of total depravity. Does it anger you when women are abused and ill-treated? And even some in the Christian home. I know of two instances uh, where one was an ordained minister and one was uh, an, an ruling elder in the church and were beating their wives. Abusing their wives. Well, it finally came out, and one of them was getting ready to be disciplined by the church, but he died. The Lord took him. And that's one way God brings us out of sinful practice. He takes our life, rather than let us continue on 
and that rebellion and that sin, he will take our lives. So does it bother you uh, when women are abused and mistreated even in the Christian home? Does it anger you with the smash and grab business of going in and breaking uh, cases and stealing jewelry and stealing clothes and just running out of the store as if uh, it was a proper thing to do? Does it anger you when you see cruelty? Edward Donnelly again said in his sermon, he commented that our society is sick because these things don't bother us. We have become inoculated against them. We have become accepting of them because they're just commonplace. We have to remember God is watching and God cares. And God says of these things, it's wrong. And I despise it. I hate it. I'm angry about it. If God is angry about something, so should we be angry about something. Our God that we love and that we service and worship. Blatant evil should make us furious. Blatant evil should make us furious. Because it is an affront to the God that we worship and the God that we serve. We've been lulled to sleep and oblivious to the dishonor heaped upon our Lord and our God. We need to open our eyes. We need to pray for God to give us the courage and the conviction to care about these things and speak out against these things when they happen. The Lord's name being taken in vain is commonplace today. You'll hear people say, oh, my God, not in prayer, as a curse. Your children saying, oh, my God. Does God smile at that? And the answer is no. No, he does not smile at that. He is not pleased with that. I remember when I was with Joey Piper, we were at his house one day, and there was a neighbor, a friend of, I think, Sarah, his daughter. And this little girl said, oh, my God. And Joey said, that does not please the Lord at all. And it doesn't. It doesn't. So we need then uh, to care for and be burdened by the misuse of God's name. Respect is due the name of God. Great respect. He is the creator. He is the God who formed us. He is the God who has redeemed us. He is the God who is ruling over all things. Now the problem that we have with anger we tend to get mad when we shouldn't and not get mad when we should. We get the cart before the horse. And so uh, there are those who engage in unrighteous anger over and over and over again. And what stirs our anger so often is juvenile, is childish. We don't get our way. We want to get our way. We demand to get our way. And we don't get our way. And so we get angry, cutting cut off in traffic. You recognize there are bad drivers in the city. I'm one of them. The other day, I, I can't remember where I'd been, but I was in Melinda's car. That car would go fast. So I thought I had enough time to get out and make a turn. But apparently, the driver behind me didn't think I had enough time. And so he followed me, blowing his horn at me. I didn't know who he was blowing at me. I didn't know he was blowing at me. I finally figured it out. When I turned, he quit blowing. There was no more of that. So he went straight. And 
I had no idea that the guy thought I didn't have I'm not, There was no wreck. There was plenty of time. But he got upset about it. Well, we do as well get upset. And sometimes we get so mad we say things that perhaps we shouldn't say. And how interesting uh, the reaction to people that get mad. If it was not so tragic, it'd be almost hilarious. When someone gets so mad that they shake. Someone gets so mad that they kick things. Sometimes they kick people. Sometimes they use language as a weapon to hurt and to frighten, using the foulest of language to address someone that they promise to love and cherish. You have to forget that at that moment. Using language that would shock a sailor. No offense, Winston. Using language that cuts and hurts and bruises. And that they would be ashamed if if someone heard them speaking like that to their wife or to their husband. They would be terribly, terribly ashamed. And sometimes the pinnacle of this anger is action, where there's actually someone that hits the other. Normally it's the husband that hits the wife. That absolutely is inexcusable. It should never be tolerated, ever, ever be tolerated for a man to hit his wife. Someone that does that needs to be dealt with and dealt with quite severely, as a matter of fact. And perhaps you've heard this, well, I explode and it's all over with, as if that justifies the angle. I get very upset, very upset, very, I just blow apart, but then I'm over it. That makes it okay. No, it doesn't make it okay. It's wrong. It's still wrong. And then some people uh, get into this business of not speaking. Alistair Begg. I know he gave some bad counsel. I heard that, but I'm, I am uh, still, he's got a whole lot of good to say. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask Charles or Eric Calderon. They both know about it. <clears throat> he said that there were people that get so mad. Perhaps the one on the receiving end of abuse, they don't speak. They don't speak for a week. They don't speak for a month. They don't speak for a long, long time. That's not right. How can you make peace in your marriage if you don't discuss things? And there's no way that you can make peace in your marriage when you don't discuss things. Things have to be discussed. And I agree that... Sometimes it might be better to wait a while until tempers are no longer flaring to discuss matters. But after those tempers are down and you should put them down quickly, then discuss and seek to bring peace back in the marriage or the relationship, whatever it may happen to be. And I think it is terribly misleading. The magic fix for whatever it is that happens is the word, I'm sorry. That doesn't take away pain. That doesn't take away hurt feelings. And if it is repetitive occurrence, we have to ask, is that a sincere apology? If it happens again and again and again. And if you say that's just the way I am, uh, I am just like that. I am just quick-tempered and that's just how I am. 
Well, hear what you're doing. You basically are saying that I am a brute like a dog who hates cats. And every time I see a cat, I just have to go after the cat. She's basically saying I can't change. This is a sin problem. I know that. I understand that. But I can't change. No, the thing is I don't want to change. I don't want to deal with it. It's too much trouble. And so it goes on and on and on again and again and again. Seek God's grace and seek God's help. And take it seriously. God does. God takes it very seriously. When you get upset and get angry and lose control. See here, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. How poorly we have that happen in our lives. For most often, our anger is an unrighteous anger and not a just anger. We talked about the things that should anger us, and we should be angry about the sins that we see in the world. But so often we are accepting of those, and our anger is an ungodly kind of anger. Well, notice here the apostle says to take it seriously. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't let that happen. Deal with it. Listen to this. Unchecked anger leads to murder, according to what Jesus said. You're angry with your brother. It's like murder. That's a violation of the commandment. You shall not kill. I don't think anybody ever murdered somebody and they weren't mad about something. Unchecked anger leads to destruction. In the marriage, in the church, in relationships, it leads to destruction. Just like lying, and so anger does as well. It leads to destruction. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, he says to us. There is fire in the belly, so to speak, when we have anger. Unless you put it away, that continues to burn and fester until it becomes something that destroys. And we have to take serious the fodder we have in our lives for Satan to work. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Selfishness, anger, unrepented, that's a playground for the devil to destroy more and more and more and wreak havoc in a marriage or in a church. And the last thing is that we are to relate to one another on the basis of charity, as he says here in the text. Uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to help give those in need. In this time in history, if you were poor and stuck in that, there were one of two things you could do. You could beg or you could steal. You remember in the scriptures, the blind people, what did they do? They begged. If they didn't have family to help take care of them, they would beg and depend on something like someone to give them some kind of help. Well, here, apparently, these people have decided, well, we are going to steal. So Paul says, don't do that. That's another thing that brings disruption in the community of God. Stealing from one another. Can you imagine you have somebody over and deliver? Where's my, where's my centerpiece? It was here just a moment ago. This silver centerpiece my mother gave to me. What happened to it? And you find out your guest who's a Christian. Well, he took it. Because they thought it was fine. 
uh, to steal, to rob. And Paul says, no, no, I don't know what was happening here in the church at Ephesus, but people were stealing. Maybe because they needed money, maybe because they were just greedy. But Paul says, no longer steal. What are they to do? Well, they're there to work. In the book of Thessalonians, Paul writes this, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. Don't encourage his laziness by giving to him when he's capable. There used to be a guy that came by the church a few times uh, at different periods. and He was always dressed in red shorts and a red shirt, and he was a guy that looked like he could lift up a car. Well, uh, he came by one day when Joe was at the office. We used to be over here, and I was not there. She called me. I said, don't open the door. Keep the door shut. By the time I got back, the individual was gone. The same guy, we were having a session meeting, and I went to uh, Carmelita's to get Mexican food for the meeting. And he was there in the parking lot. And he asked me to give him help. I said, no, I'm not going to. And he showed me a piece of paper. He said, look, I am a veteran. He was arguing with me. I am a veteran. Well, I knew him. He didn't, obviously did not remember me. I remembered him. He followed me inside Carmelita's, sat down on the bench they had by the front door, while I was taking care of my business, paying for the food and all that, and getting boxed up in a box to bring it to the session meeting. And he finally got up and left before I went out to go back to the car. And Carmelita said, what does he want? I said, well, he wanted me to give him money. She said, he can get a job. I said, yes, I think he can. It's one thing if somebody can't do. My brother can't work. He wanted to. He desperately wanted to work. But he couldn't. He can barely walk without falling down. But people that can work and choose not to work don't deserve help. There are plenty of jobs in this city. Plenty of opportunities to work and labor. The Apostle Paul says, no longer still, but work. And what do you do with it? He says, give it away. What nonsense is this? I'm supposed to work, and then I'm supposed to give it away? Uh, yeah, to those who are in need. Here's someone that has a need, and you can meet it. Don't say, well, there are places you can go, go to Star of Hope and go there or whatever. Because if you have the opportunity to meet that need, and we have to be careful, I know, because they're like that guy, the red short guy. There are scam artists all over the place. But if you know somebody that has a sincere and true need and you can help it, according to what Paul says here, that is something that you should do. You know, there are three things that um, if we do, we're supposed to be healthy, right? The right amount of sleep, right diet, and then exercise. You do these three things, that's supposed to lead to a healthy life, and I think it, it does lead to a healthier life anyway. Doesn't mean you won't get cancer ever, but at least to a healthier life. The things that he mentions here in the text, that is, of telling the truth, controlling your anger, and working to being generous, that's the picture because of who you are in Jesus Christ. That's a picture of a healthy Christian. That's a picture of someone who's seeking to do 
what they are called to do before the Lord. Lying is poison to the Christian. Lying is poison to a marriage. Lying is poison in the church as well. And anger is so destructive. That's one reason in the church, when you read the qualifications for an elder, he is not to be pugnacious. Not to go to the session meetings and basically fight to get what he wants and cause quarrels and disruption. One day, a long time ago, I was in my office, used to be right here in this room, and a man came by who was an elder, and he spent 45 minutes tearing me apart for one thing or another. After he finally got through, I said, let's pray. He started laughing. His heart was so filled with anger and so filled with perturbedness, if you will, he couldn't even pray. He was not even willing to pray at that point. And that's what he needed to do. He was so upset with me about all kinds of things. Let's pray. He couldn't do it. That's what anger does to your heart as a Christian. You don't want to pray. I've got so much violence in me, so much disdain in me, so much hatred in my heart, I can't pray. Well, that's very, very wrong. So again, you see the necessity in the officers, as it says, that they are not to be pugnacious. Recognize the great gift you have of your spouse. Cherish them. Cherish them. The Lord gave them to you. Cherish them. Speak kindly to one another. Recognize the great gift that God has given us in the church and seek to protect its unity. Protect the unity of the church. Consider others as more important than yourselves and not to be angry and be divisive in the church, which is wrong. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as you sit there today? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, these things are not important to you. What's important to you is you. Above all things, me. If you do know Christ, what should be most important to you is Jesus. And honoring Jesus. And recognizing this is not your church. It's the church of Christ. It's his church. And he cares how we relate to one another in his church. He's given us the guidelines. By his grace, we are to follow those guidelines for a healthy church. Let's pray.